I'm a senior vice president here at CSIS and I hold the Schreier chair. Uh, we're going to be having a, a Chevron forum here on, on the sustainable development goal number four on quality education. I'm really grateful uh, to our friends and partners at Chevron who we've worked with for almost 10 years now at CSIS on global development issues. Um, and it's, there's lots of energy and interest on the SDGs, but not a lot of folks who want to sponsor a series on all of them. We've done about six events like this over the last year on the SDGs, and we're going to probably march through all 17 of them. It's sort of the, it's kind of like the long march of the SDGs. But um, I think this one in particular is quite interesting. We have a really interesting set of panelists. Um, if you look in the, over the last 30 years, there's been an immense amount of progress in basic education. But at the same time, there's a series of changes coming, technological, urbanization, demography, uh, also just larger improvements in, in global development that mean that the kinds of uh, educational achievements that uh, were useful or, or were needed 30 years ago may not be enough for today or for the future. Also, we've got folks who are, who are falling through the cracks. We've got uh, something like 750 million adults are illiterate, were illiterate in 2016, two-thirds of whom, two-thirds were women. Um, there's 260 million children and youth who weren't in school in 2017. These are, this is bad. It's bad. Not good. It's not good for us. It's, uh, it's not a good thing. So I think we've got some really thoughtful and interesting people to help us unpack the issues. Uh, I think we're, I think uh, global education's at a pivot point. And I think uh, we'd like to do some more work on this. And um, we've done some work related to this on the future of work. We did a, a year-long exercise on the future of work. But I think we want to uh, double-click on, on the issue of, of education, from basic education through, through uh, vocational technical training and higher education. I think we wanna, we weren't, we're going to want to revisit this. And so this is a nice opportunity for us to, to begin to do that. Let me ask my, my friends, uh, the panelists, to come up and join me, please. I used to watch when I was sick, from home from school and sick, I'd watch Bob Barker. Okay, so SDG number four, quality education. I think we've got four really thoughtful people to talk about this. Patrick Fine is the Chief Executive Officer from FHI 360. We have Amber Gove, who's the Director of Research at RTI International. We have Pia Saunders-Campbell, who is the Director of Assets, Assets, Asset Strategy and Knowledge at the International Youth Foundation. And then we have uh, Julie Cram, who's a Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Bureau of Economic Growth, Education, and the Environment. So, so Patrick, um, you started your career as an education officer a long time ago. So you've been following and have been invested in these issues and working on these issues for a very long time. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Dan. And it's great to be here. And um, thanks for focusing on SDG 4. Um, that um, sustainable development goal is very comprehensive. It, in, it, it spans from early childhood education through basic education, vocational education, higher education, and then lifelong learning. So it includes sort of any aspect of personal growth and development. Um, when I look at where we've been and where we're going, um, what I see is the, I, I focus on the changes we see in the world today and the, the, the new types of demands that, um, that social and economic change are creating 
and placing on education systems, on, on institutions, and on people. Um, the current policy agenda was really one that was set and, uh, uh, in 1990 at the Jom Tien Conference in Thailand, and it was the Declaration for Education and All, for All. And, and now, 30 years later, that's still really sort of the guiding framework that the international community has been following. And that focused on basic education. That really was about basic education for, and basic education for a knowledge economy. If you look at where we are now, we're, we've moved into a post-knowledge economy. And um, uh, Tony Wagner, who's a scholar at, at Harvard and has done a lot of work on the idea of the future of work, he, he says we've moved into an innovation economy. But my, my view is that the policy agenda that we developed 30 years ago for the knowledge economy is not the right policy agenda that we need, a, we need to update it, and we need a new policy agenda for the post-knowledge economy, and that that agenda should focus on lifelong learning, because that's where the real challenges are going to be. And there, those are not just challenges for advanced economies or affluent societies. In fact, you can see that there's just a convergence. And in fact, some poor countries are going, they're leapfrogging technologies, and in some ways, they'll, they, they can be ahead of us, or they may be ahead of, of more affluent country, countries. So there's a convergence. And that demand for uh, a technology-driven, um, work-based, placed, uh, um, lifelong learning is, is a discussion that we need to have. So that what that looks like, we haven't really well-defined. We have a very well-defined agenda for basic education. But we don't have, and we haven't had the discussions to inform what that post, that beyond basic education uh, looks like, um, beyond what our current institutions have. And so um, I think that it's time for the international community to convene again around the topic of education, or SDG4, and to um, try to build a consensus around what that uh, next uh, policy agenda framework would look like. And I don't think it will be an easy consensus to reach because there's a lot of debate and there's some real uh, contestation within the development community and amongst educators about where the focus really should be. Okay, so next year it'll be 30 years, the 30th anniversary. Right. I think that's a good hook to hang this Mm -hmm. something on. So watch this space. Amber, thank you. Thanks for having me. The SDGs, I think, really did double down, as Patrick said, on the on this focus on learning. So we had implicitly in a lot of the Jam Tian goals, learning was in there, but it's made much more explicit and much more explicit at all levels. So into early childhood, all the way through to secondary and, and higher ed. But we're still, I think, getting the foundations sorted out. Uh, a lot of the problems that I think we can trace to youth actually 
uh, or a lot of the problems that youth are struggling with can be traced to the fact that we failed these kids in early childhood and early education. Uh, we have upwards of 90 or even more percent of kids who have been in school for two, four, six, eight years who aren't reading a single word. We're finding this in, in quite a number of countries. Um, and we shouldn't be letting that happen. So the systemic failures of our systems really to, to support teachers in the classroom, to ensure every kid can have a high quality textbook, um, that they're taught in a language that they speak and understand. These are kind of basic fundamentals that we're still struggling to get right in a lot of these countries. So I, I'm definitely supportive of the, the whole idea of lifelong and life-wide learning, as, as many of our colleagues have expressed. But um, we're at risk of having 250 million kids getting the end of primary school without these basic skills. And until we fix that, we're going to continue to struggle and continue to spend more money later on in life for these children. Um, and it's just going to get more costly. Okay, so what do you think of a, 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 an international conference? What's your take on that? I'm all for international conferences. You're up for conferences? Uh, sure, sure. You're going to have the cookie plate. On the cookie plate, plate over here and the fruit over there. Right. Uh, so, the, so the World Bank just picked or picked a part of the SDGs to focus on. If you saw in the last couple of weeks, they've set a new goal around learning poverty. And learning poverty being... Uh, the percentage of 10-year-olds you can read. And that, that kind of focus is really catalyzing. We, we get jealous sometimes in education of our health colleagues who focused and reduced dramatically infant and child mortality over the last 20 years. Having a focus goal, a foundation on which to build, it's really hard to advance your society if you're building on shaky foundations. Um, so I like the focus. I like the focus that the agency that USAID has had over the last uh, decade or so you get better at something. And when an, an agency or organizations can focus on working on a particular skill area or working at a particular area, that can be a comparative advantage. If we can continue to offer high quality early book design, um, high quality teacher training, and help get teacher change happening, that's an area that I think still has a ton, we haven't solved it. <laughs> ton of work to be done, and we can focus and support countries in that regard. Could you tell the story, Amber, about Chad that you were telling earlier? The we're not supposed to name countries. Okay, don't name countries. Okay, so the maybe country that we a won't name. country recently, though, I heard from a colleague, um, just reprinted the same books that they had from 30, 40 years ago because no one had taken the time to invest in the book redesign. So the... World Bank or other donor lending gets approved, and there's a no objection provided for the purchase of X million dollars of books. And the time that it takes, and it takes time, it takes time to develop the books in a language that the children speak and understand. It takes time to develop the lesson plans. It takes time, can be two to three years if you do it right, to do a really good book redesign, testing it out with the teachers, making sure they like it. Uh, making sure that it's culturally and contextually appropriate, making sure that the font is right, the printing is right, it's not on paper that's like tissue paper that you hold up to the, or the binding, this happens a lot. You print a bunch of books and somebody forgot to get the right kind of glue so it gets shipped in a container and the books all melt, quite literally. So we talked a little bit earlier about private sector. We need some help in book supply chain issues. This is, we can get a Coke or an ice cream cone to the farthest reaches of the highest mountains and the hottest places in the world, a cold Coke or a cold beer, we haven't figured out to get a book that costs a dollar in the hand of every kid in all of these countries. And until we do that, 
I'm not super excited about one tablet per child because it's a supply chain issue, it's a management issue, it's a, I'm not really rooting for ed tech in the hands of every kid until we sort out these other really basic fundamental issues about a physical book in the hand of every kid. We're not doing that yet. Hey, can I, I want to disagree. <laughs> because I think, um, not to say that those things aren't important, but you're solving the 20th century problems when we need to be thinking about how we address 21st century challenges. And that's, that's the tension that I see in the education debate right now between the advocates who say the foundation is still broken, we still need to invest in basic education, and, and keep the focus there because that's, that's the foundation and if kids can't read and write, then you know, they're not gonna be able to use a cell phone. But I, don't, I, don't, I think that's old thinking and I think that we need to shift our gaze to the future and the future it doesn't say that basic education isn't important, but it says we need to put emphasis on what happens after beyond basic education. And until we do that, I think we're, we're investing in 20th century challenges when we should be focusing on the 21st century. So, so, so Amber, are you stuck in the 20th century? Uh, I think I'm a little younger than that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a yes and, right? Yeah. So again, we're continuing to spend a lot of money to fix the things that we didn't get right the first time. We can go even earlier. We're still broken in the zero to eight. Too. Early child investment. Thankfully, there's a there's a new um, the Global Child Thrive Act was just announced this week um, on bipartisan bicameral proposal to support children in early childhood globally through our through our donor work. We've got a lot of evidence to indicate we know how 90% of brain development happens in the first five years of a child's life. It's not happening in our brains so much anymore. It happens. A I'm lot young. I'm young. Amber, I'm young at heart. What was your name? Again? I mean, what? <laughs> right, right. Uh, so let's get that right. It's yes and. We need to continue to address the challenges that we didn't get right when they were young, because we can't let those kids not be helped when they're in secondary and higher and when they're struggling to get jobs, because frankly, a lot of employers are saying these kids don't have basic reading skills. So, so, so can I say, like, I'm, a, I'm like, I agree with both of you. Can I say that? So, so I just so we did this whole exercise on the future of work, and my, one, there were several takeaways from that exercise. One was that we needed to bring in a larger community of stakeholders to, to about global education and workforce development, the way that we did with HIV about 20 years ago. We brought in the intelligence community and the security community. Now, I just think that it, I mean I'm prepared to keep do, you know doing panels like this for the next five years and have the same folks come, but I think if we want to make change happen, if we want to have American leadership in some of this stuff, we're going to have to bring in other stakeholders who are basically, we can bring around to these issues, but just that they don't, you know, they don't think about these things, but are worried about things like, you know, demographic time bombs or forced migration, large uncontrolled forced migration. And so I think we need to be thinking about how we bring in some other stakeholders. That was my one deep thought. My second deep thought was, I am all for skilling. I, I came away saying we need to have skilling and making sure that we, we get beyond just basic education. But I did agree, Amber, with something you said earlier, which was about this issue of if, if you don't have basic numeracy and basic literacy, I'm not sure like what, the, what my smartphone's going to do for, for me. You know, I don't know how I work this thing. So I think, so 
it's a little bit of a dodge to say I agree with both of you, but I think I think that's. I, but but let me, Amber, can I just push a little bit on this issue of technology mm -hmm. and ed tech? So, aren't there? I mean, you know, there are 700 million phones in Africa. Like, doesn't that mean something? Doesn't that doesn't that change something about the the, the, the business of education? Shouldn't that? There's 25 million cell phones in Afghanistan, up from zero, you know, 20 years ago. They're all in the hands of many people. They're ubiquitous. Aren't they a learning tool? Aren't they an instrument of education? And should, so. I'm all for books, and I actually don't like reading digital books. I like books. Now, is that maybe I'm a old I'm old fashioned. <laughs> I'm old fashioned. I'm a conservative person, small c conservative, and so I like books. Bill Gates likes books. He's confessed he likes books. So, 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 can you just can I just push a little bit on this issue of books versus sort of new technologies because because I think this is this is important. So we did an RCT because. We so are RCT a for randomized for, control trial. That's the so. Cadillac of M&E, right? That's like right. the gold standard of M&E. It's super expensive, and you throw a lot of smart people at it. You get, Nobel Peace you get a Nobel, you get Peace, Nobel Prize Peace Prize if you right. do it right. You right. If you play your cards right, you get right. a Nobel Prize. But the idea was to test out just just as we do in health. You've got different treatments and different approaches, and which one is going to work? But more importantly, which one's the most cost effective? So at the time that we did this, we provided a tablet at the child level, the teacher level, and the coach level. Um, this was in Kenya and has been published, and I can share the link to that. And so the results indicated that they were pretty much all equally effective. Books versus tablets. No, this, so this was comparing, everybody got their books. Everybody this was comparing the tablet. So the child level, the teacher level, and the coach level. Each teacher had a coach who visited once a month in that tablet, and they could support the teacher on that tablet and provide feedback and, and support. Um, each teacher got the tablet to use and could pull up our lesson plans for the day and share that, or at another part of the, the study was the child got it, right? So which one, they were all about equally effective. In other words, everybody improved around the same level. But when you brought cost into it, the cost effectiveness or how much it costs to get each little level of improvement, the least costly part of that um, approach was the tablet at the coach level. It was, there were only 15,000 coaches in the whole country, so you could just, or 1,500 coaches, so you could provide only 1,500 tablets and you're done. So as we're still looking at cost effectiveness and trying to figure out how to extend technology, we need to figure out where we're going to get the most bang for the buck. And in this place, it wasn't at the child level. It was same, much, much higher cost at the child level, but equal levels improvement. When we supported the teacher, provided high quality lesson plans and high quality books, and use the tablet to support that teacher and provide feedback, we, it was much more cost effective. I still like the tablet. I like tablets too. Tablets are great and we are All this facts better. and data, my yeah, head's starting to hurt. Yeah, I'm a numbers person. But I, I, I agree with I you. I was allowed to be wonky here. You so. are totally allowed to be Thank wonky. You. This All is right. a think tank. You're totally right. Perfect. I, Amber, yeah. I take your point. No, okay. I, Amber, I take your point and that's, that's interesting because it's, that's not the, 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 I don't want to call it the intuitive, but maybe call it the congenial thesis is, sure. wouldn't it be wonderful? Like this is why we have research. That's why we have research. Yes. Okay, so we can't just work on like what's congenial and we what feels good. We can't just make stuff up. We can't just Sorry. make stuff up. It's not allowed. Okay, thank you. Okay, Pia, so you're with IYF. I'm a big fan of IYF. How do you guys fit into this conversation? And can you please explain what the assets, asset strategy and knowledge, what does that mean? Yes, indeed. Um, and Dan, thank you for hosting the panel, and thank you for having me at CSIS. 
Um, I'll start first with that last question. So um, our asset strategy and knowledge unit is a bit of a technical unit at the International Youth Foundation. Um, we consider our assets to be uh, core principles to implement and execute our strategy, uh, which uh, is um, focuses on unlocking youth agency, expanding employment opportunities, and working to make systems more inclusive and youth responsive. And our asset areas are gender and social inclusion, focusing on life skills training or that social emotional learning, um, and utilizing digital development to reach more and marginalized people. Um, so SDG4 is very important. Um, and it's really about improving learning outcomes rather than improving schools. We see the school improvement or the teacher improvement, the capacity of teachers or facilitators as intermediate outcomes in this SDG. And IYF really sees SDG 4 as a framework for partnering with governments, education and training institutions, which are primary or secondary schools, TVETs, um, community-based organizations that can reach young people who are not in school, not in those formal education institutions, the private sector, and young people themselves to collaboratively develop strategies for systems change. SDG 4 is beyond basic education, and it includes the foundational skills that Amber's been emphasizing, definitely social-emotional learning, leadership, and global competencies that young people need for work, but also to be a global citizen and leaders of their community. It's about youth, transferable skills, and, and unleashing the potential of young people to be the solutions that they want to see in the future. We, we see part of the problem as being the environment, and if we get the environment right, Everyone has the capacity to learn and to engage productively and contribute positively to their societies, which in turn, we all, we all recognize the evidence, creates more productive and stable societies. Um, and that advances all of the SDGs that we've set forth as a global community. Um, unemployed and unengaged youth and insecurity are linked, and so we see SDG 4 as a framework for helping build skills for young people to engage positively in their communities. Um. Pia, can I, you know, this is Dan's theory of change in education and skilling, that young people have energy, and they're going to do three things with the energy. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but this is Dan's simplified schematic. They're either going to participate in the formal economy in a job, they're going to expend their energy in something that's like in the illicit economy, they're going to join a gang in LA, or they're going to join a gang in Central America, they're going to go join an armed group in the Sahel or Afghanistan. Young people have energy, and they're going to channel it for good or for ill. The third option is they're going to migrate. So it seems to me that I like door number one. I'm okay with door number three, kind of, as on, kind of on a managed basis, but it seems to me that the, we need to do a better job of linking jobs and education and skilling and jobs uh, to the national security conversation. I don't think we have enough people thinking about this in our national security community. I think they're kind of vaguely kind of open to this, but I don't, I don't see this described in our national security strategy as something that we actually need to get a, get a handle on. It seems to me that we, you know, having a, you know, we, ought to, we ought to be, I mean, I think 
the reason, I would argue that what happened with, with Global AIDS 20 years ago is the intelligence community did an assessment in the late 90s saying that we're gonna have a collapse in a number of African countries and we're gonna have tens of millions of people who are parentless and there's gonna be a whole lot of chaos and mayhem is gonna result from, from this, you know, this terrible scourge. So I think, you know, I'm not necessarily saying we need to scare the heck out of the American people, which, the, you know, to, to paraphrase Senator Vandenberg in the 1940s before the Marshall Plan, but it seems to me that the kinds of things you work on at IYF is, is directly linked to this, to this issue. Well, how many countries do you all work in? Um, in our history, we have worked over in over 70 countries. But when I think about you guys, what I've always liked about IYF is you have a link to skilling and to jobs. And the, hey, Errol, is the dental's work gonna stop outside? We're trying. Okay, great. <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about the dental work in the background. So, 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 it just seems to me one of the things that we need to bring it, we've had, we haven't had much of a discussion here other than sort of on the technology about bringing in the private sector, and I don't wanna over fetishize the private sector. I think we need the private sector. But it seems one of the most important things the private sector can do is just offer internships, and, offer, and you guys have, are, one of the things you do is sort of engage companies at scale to plug young people into door number one, right? Isn't that what you, part of what you guys do? That's right. Huge yeah. fan, huge yeah. fan. Okay, great. Okay, can I ask you? I, I, want... I, I need to say something. Okay. There, there's You're a, not a, there's a fourth door. What's the fourth door? The fourth door is, is being in education institutions or education settings. So. You're not in a job you're in yet. A, yes, okay, yes. But you're yes. studying and I you're in that you know, okay. age group of say 15 to 25. Yes. And that's also productive. Yes, I agree with that, thank you. Okay, so it's door, door number two is that. So in my, my new schematic, my new improved schematic, <laughs> if someone wants to add additional doors, I'm open to that. So door number one is a job. Number two is formal, useful training and education, I'm, yes. 100%, and then door number three and four, okay. So, so could you just talk about, so two things, so could you talk a little bit more about how the private sector plays a role here, and then for a second, third, second, do you like, how about a global conference in September, October 2020 here in Washington? So a, a global conference is great. I think any, we believe at IYF that any kind of platform that will help us collaboratively develop solutions and make sure that the key stakeholders are in the room and that there is ownership and there is a shared vision for what we're all working toward is something that, that I think we'll, we support and we are all for. Um, with the private sector, I, you know, I, I think we're getting back to the issue that it's really about systems and it's about the environment and how do we collectively create enabling environment for young people to thrive. And that's really to thrive in work and life and recognizing that young people are the leaders of the future. And, real, and taking um, an assets-based approach to youth and to youth development. So recognizing that sorry, sorry, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. What, what is assets-based, what does that mean? So really seeing young people as uh, having potential and positive potential for change rather than being a problem that we have to deal with. And so investing in young people, investing in development um, is, is a, a key part of our strategy, but then also working with those enabling environment and working with a contribution that can can uh, be ready to receive young people as leaders and to be, receive young people as a global citizen willing, to, willing and ready to create that change and identify and put forward the solutions that they want to see to the problems that they face in their communities. 
One of the ways we do this is by working with the private sector um, and taking on a systems approach where we work with the private sector and link the private sector actors um, with education and training institutions to help, the, help inform the skills that are in demand by that private sector and in a local economy. Sometimes we're able to work with a professional association um, so that we're, we're aggregating uh, individual employers or private sector actors to better understand what, what are the job openings, what are the skills that, that education and training institutes should be skilling young people up on, and then really, really creating that cycle of information sharing so that young people, when they are in school, are, are being taught the skills that are in demand by the private sector. And this includes, and, and one of the things that I think we all see in research and recent reports, um, including by the WEF and by different universities in the US and abroad, is that social emotional learning or life skills are the skills that are most in demand. And there's also, a, employers report a skills gap where they, they aren't able to find the necessary uh, supply of labor to, to fill jobs to, to perform well. Okay, so um, so Amber, can I ask you just react to this issue of the the soft skills and the which is that where, where does that fit in the in in some of your comments that you were making earlier? Is this the everything I needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten answer? Yes. But yeah, it, it's what are the things that we know, particularly from longitudinal studies, so over the lifetime of the child with Head Start and the work that um, Heckman, another Nobel Prize, throwing around Nobel Prize folks, um, that the skills that are most likely to stick in particularly in early childhood um, training and education and support for children are, are those play nice on the playground skills. So the the soft skills, the social emotional skills, which I'm super excited, I'm sure we'll hear now from um, Julie to hear about the, the expansion with the USAID strategy to include uh, not just a focus on reading, but reading and math and social emotional learning. Absolutely, we need to get that right and we can start to build it when they're really young. Got it, okay, thank you. Okay, so Julie, thanks for being here. AID is a major leader on basic education. Uh, has a, you know, in uh, Congresswoman Nita Lowy has been a major champion of this. And so between AID has had a, has had a partnership with the US Congress on this for many years. And we have, you know, some, some of the strongest areas of work for AIDs in the basic education sphere. So thanks for being here. You bet. And Sorry about the, the uh, root canal going on outside. That's all right. I think we can, we can overcome it. Uh, I see a lot of friendly faces and, and familiar faces in the audience. So thank you guys for taking the time out of your really busy schedules to be here. And thank you, Dan, for hosting this. It has been already an invigorating discussion um, as a follow-on to a quick discussion we had upstairs prior to us sitting up here before you all. I call it the pre-game. Um, it it, uh, I like it because it, gets your, it gets, your, gets, your, uh, gets your head in the game. And then just one final thing. It's just, except for this gentleman here, in the red, in the in the red, nobody is sitting in the front row, <laughs> which I'm not sure what that says, but we'll we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, so uh, again, grateful to be here amongst such an august um, uh, group of folks, um, and uh, obviously at USAID we think about quality education. That's pretty much all we think about, uh, um, and uh, and we're. Uh, doing all we can to make sure that we get to solve this global education learning crisis that we have. Um, uh, but I wanted to kind of pick up on some of the theme here that, that, that our two colleagues in the middle, and Dan was trying to keep get it going. Um, I think we can do both. 
but I think the only way we can do both, we obviously clearly have to have foundational skills. Um, uh, people are not going to be able to move on, although I would love to understand, and I'm going to look it up as soon as I get home, what the post-knowledge economy is, because it sounds a little unusual to me, so I'm eager to, to learn what it is. Um, but, but I also think, to your point, um, Patrick, is that we have to focus and think differently about how we look at ourselves, and most importantly, how we deliver and take advantage of what's happening in the world today, and how are we gonna look around the corner and figure out how for those kids that do have foundational skills, how do we get them better prepared for jobs um, and engage the private sector? So a big part of what we're trying to do at USAID is think differently um, and try to look at ourselves differently and look at the policy environment that we've created that speaks a lot to where our priorities are um, and also speaks to um, where uh, a recognition of the facts uh, and how what the, what, the, what the reality is. We're in a world of dwindling resources, so we must look at how we leverage our resources differently. Um, and I'm gonna talk about that in a minute, but we also need to look at how we talk amongst ourselves. So Dan, I a thousand percent support you and CSIID, CSIS rather, um, and I'm always eager to get an, another international conference. Yes. Oh, you'll be hearing Not from me. Not really, um, but as long as it's results focused and we're actually going to think about how we can um, solve this problem. There have been thousands and billions and billions of dollars that have been thrown at that just in the short time I've been here. And some of the folks that are playing in this, including USAID, we're not seeing the results. Um, GPE just had a, a, a very self-aware, I, I really applaud them, uh, assessment of, what, of, of the results that we've had um, around trying to infuse systemic change um, at a multilateral level. And I think we, can, we, we, we all walked away from a board meeting saying, we have to do better. Um, so, uh, so we're trying to do that. Um, uh, Miss, we talked about Miss Lowy. Um, one of the things, one of the great things I've had the honor of doing, is helping to get the U.S. government together in hopes that it's a leadership-focused opportunity for our other donor community um, to look at themselves and how can they work better across their governments. Um, we have still have a long way to go. We're about a year into it about how we be more, how we're more efficient amongst ourselves. Um, uh, and then we just put out a policy that looks at. Early childhood development, again, thanks to Ms. Lowy, um, early and others that co-signed that have been also champions on the Hill. Um, from early childhood development all the way through, again, all the familiar faces have heard ad nauseum about the policy and we're a big part of the strategy as well. Um, but but um, how do we, uh, I think, we need to look at leadership development skills um, earlier I do believe most of what we need to learn, we, need, we learned in kindergarten. Um, and so how do we get that um, with the uh, enormous and growing kids that are in crisis and conflict? Um, and have safe places. So part of what we're trying to look at too is be self-aware and, and understand how um, we get education uh, in a much, um, as part of our development and humanitarian um, coherence plans, uh, much earlier and much more thoughtfully and across the whole spectrum. Um, 
But uh, you guys have heard the self-reliance and country roadmaps and, and all of that. But just going back to quickly, Dan, your point on um, I couldn't agree more going to the leverage and resourcing of new people. We also need to leverage the absolute foundational driver that education is to our national security. Um, it is embedded in our national security, and it's also part of our JSP. Um, and so that really does trickle down from it's the our JST. Uh, the Joint Strategic Plan. Oh, JSP, thank with you. With the State Department. Um, development is part of our national security apparatus, democracy, development, and defense. Um, uh, and so, um, so I couldn't agree more in bringing those, those voices and that evidence um, and that argument, if you will, to the forefront. Um, I know my boss believes that. Uh, and so, um, but we also are in an area of dwindling resources. So we are spending a lot of time in how do we engage private, the private sector, not just in the non-state actors perspective and provisioning of schools, although we're looking at that, of course, as we should, um, but also in things like uh, we're, we're, we're working with going to, to Amber's uh, uh, note around the book chain. Um, we're getting ready to announce a, a partnership with Google um, and their um, contributions to the Global Digital Library, which is part of the Global Book Alliance. Um, we're very excited about that, which is about having digital tools as well as printed tools um, for, for children, um, low cost in heart and underserved languages, um, so, but that it is available um, across the, across the, across the, all of where we work, um, to places working with Lego, where we're leveraging our dollars with ECW, Education Cannot Wait, which is focused on delivering education in crisis and conflict, um, and Lego, who did a one-to-one -one match with us. That's the beginning of what I hope will be a beautiful partnership with us around some of the things that, they're, that we're doing um, uh, in the, the areas that Lego's working in. Um, so I'll stop there. I've already gone on too long, so thank you. All right, let me, I've got three topics I wanted to raise with this group. The first is there's been a billion dollars a year. In the, one, the foreign aid budget of the U.S. is about 30 to $35 billion a year. Uh, $1 billion a year has been, a, in essence, what's described as an earmark that Nita Lowy has championed. Nita Lowy's retiring. So what happens when the music ends? So... Who's gonna stand up for this? Uh, this it all depends on who's got the leadership roles in the, the, the key subcommittees in the House and the Senate. Uh, she's leaving. So I, one question for this group is, and question for this group to think about is, okay, so tell me who that person's gonna be. Because when she goes, this is, you know, they're, they're, this may change the dynamic so who's, who, who are you, who is going to be identified as the champion? It's one thing to say, I'm going to have an organized group and we're going to push, but you need a champion. So tell me who that is. Okay, that's the first question. You can pick and choose. This is for this panel. Yes, I'm going to want names. Yeah, name names if you want names. Second is the issue of refugees and, and IDPs. We have the highest number of refugees and internally displaced people in human history is today. It's 65 to 70 million people, más o menos. Going back to Patrick's point that uh, there's different doors and added, added an additional door to my schematic, I worry that there are millions of children not in schools because they're in refugee camps 
or IDP cams. And that, in my mind, is particularly, so we've talked, you know, that in sort of these emergency extreme situations, uh, that, that I think is one of the things I'm most concerned about. So how do we deal with that? How do we think about that? And then finally, uh, I, I want to come back to something I said at the lunch, which was about, uh, it, we, we've made a lot of progress on this issue in the last 30 years. I would argue that most societies that, I don't know what the totality of all global foreign aid is going into basic ed or into the education sphere. I don't know if it's, if we're doing about a billion or two billion, I don't know what everyone else is doing. Is it another two billion or four billion or six billion? I don't think it's more than, the global pie for foreign aid is about 130 to 150 billion a year. I don't think it's 50 billion dollars. It's 10 probably, I don't know, it's somewhere between five and 10 I'm guessing, I don't know the exact number, one of you folks may know. But the developing countries themselves are spending multiples of that out of their own tax systems. So there's something called domestic resource mobilization. We need to come up with a better term than domestic resource mobilization. Someone, anyone who's a marketing person can help me with this. But, um, and there's been a quintupling on taxes collected in Africa. Not all of it evenly distributed, but in the last 20 years, there's been a quintupling in taxes collected in Africa. So, and I would argue that partially because of organized engagement in the West, because of policy dialogue, because of in growing civil society, a growing understanding of the, the benefits of education, you've seen more money being put by countries themselves, a lot more money themselves into this. And I would argue that it's multiples. And I was asking folks, okay, tell me what the change has been. So, and Patrick, I asked you this earlier, you were in Uganda in 30 years ago, what percentage of the budget, the basic, the education ministry budget was ODA, and what is it today? And I'm not gonna hold you to an exact number, but I would posit that the pie in Uganda for education is bigger and that the slice that ODA provides is smaller, not because we're stingier, but because the pie's bigger. And so I think we have to have some, we have to have some humility about kind of the theory of change. Like what's our lever? The UN system talks about foreign aid and ODA as a catalyst. And I think we need to think about foreign aid being a catalyst in the context of education as well. That, but I think oftentimes in the implementer, this is Dan's outside view looking in, that sometimes there's a little bit of a sin of assuming that the billion or two billion is sort of the whole pie when it's actually a very small part of the pie. Now maybe I'll, I'll be corrected and say no, that's not the, ever the case, but it seems to me there's some assumptions in the theory of change that assumes that the billion we're putting in is, is like the whole thing when it's not. And so how do we think about that? Is, is that so, so, those, so three things, who's gonna replace needle low. You don't have to answer each one of these, but I want you to each take on these. Who's, who's gonna, what happens when the music ends, when she walks out the door in January of 2021? Who's we're gonna replace? Because I think if you care about this, and I suspect many people in this room do, I don't think they've, most folks who are in this world are not political in the political sense, but we're gonna, you know, you're gonna have to think politically. Second, what do we do about the refugee IDP challenge? Because I think this is a screaming need. And then third, how do we think about sort of the, the changed over the last 30 years that countries are paying for their own basic human needs and where do we fit in this change picture and in this changing picture? All right, first, um, we don't know who is going to replace Nita Loy as a champion for education. 
And the fact that she's leaving may, it may, the result may be that there is a shift in focus um, with respect to how to prioritize foreign assistance or what role basic education takes. But we do know that within Congress, both the House and the Senate, there are many members who care about kids, particularly. And that um, I would expect that there will be a continuing emphasis about the well-being of children and that um, one or more of those advocates will emerge. But from my point of view, part of the problem right now is that it's easy to mobilize support for kids because kids are cute and they're vulnerable and they're, um, you know, and we, I think we're like wired to care about kids. It's a lot harder to mobilize support for youth, as I hope Pia would agree with me, because they're messy, they're not as cuddly. <laughs> uh, you know, they may be joining gangs. I have two teenage children. So you in, know exactly what I'm in, talking in, about. In Spanish, <laughs> in Spanish, the description for teenagers is la edad de pavo, the age of the turkey. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, so, you know, I think that we, again, I think we need to look towards the horizon. And I talked about looking towards the horizon in terms of lifelong learning. I, one of the things on the horizon that I'm very happy, Julie, that you raised is education in crisis. Because that's another reality in our world that we can see. It's here now and we can see it continuing out you know, for as far as we can see, that we're, we have more displaced people now than ever before in the history of the world. I was at a refugee camp in northern Nigeria that had 17,000 school-age kids in it. It was a very well-organized camp, very orderly, good governance, you know, divided into zones, local committees that ran it. And it had good health care, so health care was pretty accessible in that camp. 17,000 school-aged kids, two schools. So, so education in Christ, you know, I'm, I'm an advocate for um, shifting our focus uh, or expanding our focus, but really kind of shifting our focus away from, from basic education, going beyond basic education, to looking at, at secondary and post-secondary education, because I see that's where the economic demands are for countries to be able to compete in a globalized economy and to create the opportunities for those kids who get the foundation, or even if they don't get the foundation, they're still gonna be you know, 20-year-old, 25-year-olds who have to participate in their society, and that's, that's where I see a big demand, but equally, I see this demand for education in crisis. And uh, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, on DRM, or, or you know, countries financing their own uh, education, um, meeting their own educational needs or the educational needs of their people, um, I, I see the future as one where you'll have continued public finance at the basic, you know, 
K through 12, or early childhood education through secondary education, and some at the tertiary level. But that it's the, the overall picture is going to be a much more uh, picture of hybrid finance, where it's not just going to be a public sector responsibility. The public sector will, its responsibility, I think, will be more at the foundational level, and that you'll have um, private, the private sector employers and individuals paying for private instruction or for private educational services, um, and that it's going to be a much more hybrid look. So I don't see, I see DRM as super important for the foundational piece, but that there's a lot of um, architecture that needs to be done around what a more hybrid approach to uh, meeting educational demands are. And then uh, just one last comment. Um, Julie, you and Amber both talked about uh, soft skills and um, you know things like problem solving and, and uh, interpersonal communication and planning and uh, sort of so, uh, social self-awareness. Um, those, we, FHI 360 is the um, technical advisor to the National Governors Association on its work on the future of work. Mm. And I was recently at the National Governors Association meeting on this topic, and I used the term soft skills, and I was quickly corrected and told that the term is foundational skills because soft skills are not soft. It, it leaves the impression that this isn't like an easy thing to do. And in fact, those qualities um, around problem solving, the sort of executive function, those are some of the hardest things. So, I like foundational skills, <laughs> putting on my marketing hat better than socio-emotional skills. So I'll, I'll go with that. No offense to, to our technical okay, colleagues in the room. I get it, but I'm not sure everybody else does. So we'll go with that. A A Amber, what, any, take any of the three questions I've posed, or all. Any or all. Uh, I am hopeful. I would say that the folks who are behind the Global Th Child Thrive Act might be able to step up. So that's Senators Blunt and Coons and Representatives Fitzpatrick and Castro. Um, so there's some opportunity. I think though part of the challenge is we all just need to do a better job of articulating to our um, friendly American citizens and uh, the people who represent them just what we're doing in education and why it's necessary and that it does save lives. I mean, health has had this big advantage for a while because you see the immediate impact and tugging at the heartstrings and all, it's absolutely necessary. Education is just a little bit more delayed. So half of the reduction in uh, child mortality comes from increased women's literacy over the last 20 to 30 years. We are saving lives, we're just doing it, it just takes a little longer. Um, so folk, being better, being doing, not like I'm doing now, as I'm not demonstrating right now, doing a better job of articulating to the American people the impact of education. Uh, in terms of the refugee and the displacement crisis, um, we, RTI recently supported USAID and local partners in an early reading assessment in El Salvador. And as part of that, um, gathering other data, 42% of young people there had expressed interest in leaving. So why? Um, uh, lack of job opportunities, 
uh, low levels of education, violence as well. Um, our study of uh, second and third graders showed that 49% of the second graders there were at risk of reading failure in El Salvador with a GDP of $7,000 per person. So th this, is, this is not some of our other countries. Um, this, this is a reasonably well-off country. They should not, in a language that, by the way, is, is fairly um, easy to teach, it, but it's getting those really effective evidence-based practices into the textbooks, supporting teachers in classrooms with the right instructional practices, providing that ongoing coaching and support. It, we still have a lot of countries, even well-off countries, even parts of this country that are not following the latest evidence uh, that we know to be effective in terms of how to teach reading and math. And until we do that, we're, we're just gonna have a lot of work ahead of us. We, we're, we managed to mostly get doctors to wash their hands. We now need to make sure that the science of, of early learning instruction is, is really present in what we're passing on to kids in the classroom. Uh, the last one on foreign aid and domestic resource mobilization, I think I mentioned this, the work that we do is really a catalyst for innovation and real leapfrogging improvement in a lot of the countries where we work because 99% of their domestic resources are going toward teacher salaries. And so we bring in what, the better book design, the better coaching and support, the tablet-based coaching program that can really help improve at the margins because they're just slogging away using most of their money as they should be doing to support the teachers in the classroom. Um, and I'll give one last example where I think we can use a lot of our existing content to support folks in refugee camps and other places. This is where digital might come in handy as well. If we can get open licensed, open access content in lots and lots of languages, this is still a huge barrier. The publishing industry and the book industry is obviously, like any business, trying to generate revenues from the products that they're working on. But as we are funding through donor programs, the development of really great content for kids, the more we can open license that and get it into the hands of many children as possible, the better. We're doing this now in the Kakuma refugee camps in Kenya, where we're able to bring the content that we developed in partnership with the Kenya government nationally, adapt it and get it into the hands of teachers there. And that's a, just a great way to keep leveraging that donor content to these other under-resourced environments. Thank you. Pia? I'll comment on your third question, Dan. Okay. So I, I think a lot of this um, relates to the coordination and alignment between policies and programs. And how do we think about scaling our programs to meet the needs that exist today? Um, and how do we redesign development programs for sustainability and systemic change? And Part of that requires shifting the focus, and increasingly we are doing this, and, and USAID has certainly done this, uh, to locally owned initiatives and locally developed solutions. And this requires a lot of collaboration and trust with our partners and with our donors. Um, so when we're thinking about this, I, I think we, we need to be thinking about um, planning, but then also managing and evaluating development interventions for scale. And along with that, building the capacity of local institutions. So Amber's talked about uh, teacher quality and ability of teachers or facilitators to effectively teach young people in education and training institutions. And that's certainly something that we've seen in our experience as well, that it's critical to build the capacity of teachers. Uh, to teach them how to teach, to use uh, the more modern pedagogies, experiential pedagogies. Also to teach teachers and facilitators on how to use technology 
leverage technology for the, for the jobs that will exist tomorrow, um, but then also to more evenly distribute technology so that it can be used as a tool to reach more learners, more young people that are currently excluded from the education and training institutes that are currently excluded by our development interventions. We want to leverage technology to be able to enhance the learning outcomes and then ultimately those skills, whether we call them our foundational skills or life skills, uh, 21st century skills, so that, that all young people can develop those skills and develop leadership skills to be, to be the change, to lead solutions that they're facing in their communities. Um, so one of, these, one of the things that we've learned at IYF is that this, you know, if we're taking on a systems change approach and really partnering with local institutions, key stakeholders in communities and in societies, it requires a longer-term intervention. It requires more than a three- or a five-year program to develop that partnership and create that trust and facilitate that change so that local actors are leading the solutions themselves, but then also that the right actors and the right individuals have the capacity to do this. Um, and, then, and then lastly, we, we need to make sure that our solutions are fitting the context and that our solutions are fitting the problem. So these need to be evidence-based, demand-driven solutions. Um, and, and sure, those are terms that we, we toss around quite a bit, but, but really making sure that we are looking at the data, we're looking at what we're learning by uh, implementing development in interventions, as well as what we're learning from more rigorous assessments, such as the RCTs that Amber's mentioned. Good. Okay, Julie. Uh, so uh, I'm going to take... I'll start with the refugee and IDP. 50% um, of our funding in education goes to to um, to those environmental well, IDP um, in, in environments. Um, it is good um, in one respect um, in that we're we're focused on it, um, but. I'm not sure we're seeing the results that we want to see. So we've really, we're taking a harder look. This is something that, I mean, literally every time I talk to Administrator Green, this is what keeps him up at night, um, combined with the youth bulge. Um, and so, um, so looking at how do we infuse education earlier in the humanitarian um, uh, uh, response, um, and then recognizing that this new normal is normal um, and being realistic with ourselves about what that looks like um, and, um, and looking at how we uh, use technology. Um, you know, these are not places that are a year or two years. These are there's entire generations are growing up in camps, um, as we all know. Um, and so uh, it's happened very quickly, I think, um, in some respects, certainly at the speed of which the education sector works. And so we need to use things like the Global Digital Library, um, the local, uh, you know, look, uh, look at, okay, well, how do we engage local partners um, in the camps more effectively? Um, uh, so we're, we're not there. We're trying, um, but I can tell you it's something that we, that we that we really are focused on, um, and also of course engaging from a technical capability with organizations like Education Cannot Wait, um, who is set up to deliver more quickly. Um, uh, but I also think a part of that is to this is Amber's world, so I, I I'd hesitate to even put a little tiny toe in um, because she's so good at all this. But um, I think part of also both in the ODA 
but also in the crisis and conflict is there is a lot of data out there um, and part of what our policy and part of the things we're looking at is how do we better use the data that we have, um, both with ourselves but with our, with our country partners? How do they use the data that's available on the international scene and the evidence that is being built so that they can work more effectively? Um, and so I'm gonna stop there because Amber knows much more about this than I do, so I don't want to say anything, but I think that's also one of the things that we're looking at as an organization um, and in tandem with our country partners about how to, how to, um, how to, how to do the crisis um, and conflict a bit, uh, much better than we're doing um, and helping organizations like ECW um, know what's available what the learning is, and work with our with their implementing partners more effectively, because I also think that's another thing we should be doing as a donor community, is really holding our implementing partners, um, much many of you are in the room, and some of you on the, at the dais with us, but that we're sharing that knowledge really effectively. Um, uh, and um, so, uh, and some of them, particularly in crisis and conflict, are not people in this room. Um, and so, uh, and those are really difficult situations. So that's that. On the ODA, um, a part of where I think, um, uh, I'm gonna kind of, Dan, you had asked us to give us some examples. So I'm gonna give you kind of two examples of places that our work, that thing that are, where I demonstrate where USAID I think comes in, in a different level. Um, so in Indonesia, um, they've um, been implementing some major policy reforms, but two of them, um, and this also, I think, demonstrates how when a country begins to take over, has domestic resource mobilization at the right level. They've could, they did a constitutional amendment that required 20% of their budget go to education. Um, they also decentralized to the district and local level their education system. Um, and so that's producing some results. Um, yet, they've noticed that there isn't a lot of equity at the marginalized and vulnerable um, side of things. So that's where USAID is stepping in. Systemic reform and then coming in where countries are not able to, um, to fill the, the, the real needs. Um, uh, and similarly in Jordan, um, they've got access, almost 100% access, but quality is a problem. So again, major reforms focused on early childhood development, teacher training, uh, 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 data, better data for decision making. It was interesting, I was looking, preparing for this and I was looking at Jordan and it's basically kind of all of our principles in our policy, which I was really excited to see. Um, but anyway, so I think that there are some good news. There's good news on there that their people are leading their own journey and they are seeing um, some, uh, some systemic reforms. Obviously there's, lot, there's lots, lots of where, a lot more to go, but um, but in terms of our ODA, I think it's at the systemic level, and I also think it's at leveraging, and I think it is at coming in in the place where countries cannot reach. Great. Okay. You've, this has been a very patient audience. I'd love to hear from all of you. Um, please raise your hand if you have questions or comments. I've got plenty of other questions to ask this panel if, if you don't, but I'd welcome a chance for the, pan, uh, the audience to, to, to participate. Okay, uh, this woman back here, this woman here, and this gentleman here. We'll bunch them together, please. 
Hi, uh, I'm Leanna Maher. I'm the Director of Education at USAID. And I'd like to direct a question at Patrick Fine, touching a little bit on Julie's uh, comments around USAID's role in helping to reach the most marginalized children, and also the role of USAID in helping to eradicate poverty. If we indeed, what you called expand our focus, which we know with dwindling resources usually means shifting our focus to higher education, or secondary school, how do we do that in a way that does not increase the gap between the wealthy and the poor in countries where we're working? So, so I'm gonna put that in the parking lot right here from this woman over here, but so let me put you on the spot though. So what do you think about an international conference in 2020 on the 30th anniversary to revisit this? Uh, well, we are having an international conference in April 2020, which you are welcome to, and I agree with whatever Julie said about that. Good answer. Excellent response, Anna. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm Joy Duplessis from Creative Associates. Uh, my question is about the pie, and uh, it's also related to uh, how we leverage our our, our resources and our um, our funding. Uh, and that is, uh, we talk about uh, the the Amber talked about teacher salaries being the largest expenditure, but when you really look at the, the levels of education. It's primary education that has the most teachers, least paid, least valued, le worst furniture, largest numbers of classes, on and on it goes, especially in Africa. And we, that is where the rubber meets the road. So if we don't get kids learning the foundational skills by the end of grade six, say, then we have a lot of dropout. And who drops out? Girls, mostly, drop out. So that 262 million kids out of school, um, it is about 50% girls, but at the lower levels, there's even more, uh, more girls dropping out. So my question is, how do we get governments, okay, they're raising taxes, they're uh, having more funding, but what the, the pyramid of, of funding is reversed. So you have most of the expenditures of the upper levels, and as we just heard, in secondary and in, uh, in higher education, and the least funding is at the lower levels. People don't care about primary schools in so many countries. So how do we, um, how do we change that, that narrative? How do we change um, funding, how do we change all of that so that kids actually finish and learn something? Um, hi, my name is Gabriel, I'm from Panama. Um, well, I have a question, well, two. The first one is how do you um, leverage um, the different actors in the, in the community, private sector, the academy and the government and international organizations in order to make education more equitable. And the second question is, how do you um, make education a priority in difficult access areas where education is not their main problem, but is health, food, and security? How do you push or how do you help them get all of these three things and education too? Thank you. Great, thank you. <clears throat> So, Julie, why don't we start with you first, and we'll just go this way. Uh, I'll leave Leanna's question to Patrick, um, and uh, to the, the 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 gal from Creative Associates. Um, I mean, I think that 
I mean, I think that's what we're trying to do um, uh, kind of every day. Um, one of the assets that I think the United States uh, government brings um, in country is that relationship with governments and ministries of education in particular. Um, and one of the things I meant to mention earlier as well is one of the things that in addition to reaching the most marginalized helping at the systemic level, part of helping at the systemic level is helping to look at what is the regulatory environment look like um, and what are kind of the best practices um, from a systemic level. And so I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say I can't give you an exact answer because I'm not sure we've figured that out for ourselves in the United States either in some respects. So um, it's, it's, it's a perennial problem. Um, but I, I mean, clearly we've stated from the USAID's, per, from the US government's perspective that education is a priority and it is a foundational driver to sustainable international development. And so um, it, I'm, we're gonna continue to, to um, beat that drum and um, look at the systemic challenges um, as it relates to whether it's economic growth, our girls' equity, um, our equality, um, uh, and um, or agriculture, uh, you know, f education is foundational to a, a country's um, uh, GDP and economic growth, um, and those that connectivity is is again foundational to our missions. Um, I think once we begin to incorporate some of um, and look work more even more closely with our development partners, excuse me, our diplomacy partners and our defense partners where it's necessary. I think that will continue to, to, to Dan's point. And then um, to the gentleman's question, um, it's a similar answer in that um, kind of if you're looking at it from how we're approaching our crisis and conflict work is that is we believe education is um, fundamental to a humanitarian response. So when you're talking about in more rural communities or in a crisis and conflict context where you've got, um, where it's those base necessities, we believe education is a base necessity and we've learned in a crisis and conflict um, in particular that that is bearing out. Um, that when you don't have education provision from the earliest parts of a humanitarian response or disaster response, um, it, it doesn't create, you don't have the stability um, and then the further um, successes that you need in environments like that. Um, and so having in our response, ensuring that education is part of that response in a smart and strategic way that fits the context is what we need to do. And I think USAID's mandate is towards the most marginalized and most vulnerable in our policy documents reflect that. So when you're looking at rural communities in particular, um, that is some place that I think USAID and our other donor communities have an opportunity and indeed a mandate um, to, to fulfill and help governments f you know, fill that void. Okay, great. Okay, Pia. So I wanna address the second question um, and how do we leverage resources? And, and there was a, a comment on um, perhaps developing foundational skills at a certain age and uh, that a lot of times we see dropouts that are disproportionately young girls. So one of the things that we've seen at IYF through our own impact evaluations but is also verified by other research is that the more we invest in life skills or the foundational skills 
social emotional learning, we see graduation rates go up and dropout rates go down. So that's, that's one strategy to help uh, all young people stay in, in school and uh, incorporating social emotional learning or life skills in education should start early. Um, there are a number of, of research entities, including Easel at Harvard, there's a, another lab at Stanford that is looking at different ways to effectively incorporate social emotional learning into, into the classroom or into activities that are out of the classroom and can reach out of school youth. Um, another way that, uh, that we in the community can, can help young people, especially girls or other disproportionately affected groups stay in school, is to provide better services to bolster the environment to enable them to stay in school. And sometimes this will include uh, providing education or awareness raising to families or to communities about the benefits of, the, of that education. Um, on, the, on the third question, uh, you had two different parts of that question, how to leverage different actors, the government, private sector. What we've learned at IYF is this is really hard to do, um, but in the end, it always pays off. And we've understood this to be a, a real exercise in relationship building and stakeholder management and developing true partnerships where there is real trust. And without that, we've found it really difficult to create a shared vision and to co-create solutions to the problem that exists. And so we have uh, taken a, an approach where we are dedicated to build that partnership and to really create trust with the local actors who are going to be the owners of the development solution. Um, and on your question around how do we focus on education when there are more, there are bigger problems that are seemingly more urgent, I echo what Julie has said. Um, Education is a base necessity, and, and I think uh, one of the things that we've seen in some research in this area is that when we're building the capacity of individuals, we're able to help improve outcomes across different sectors, not just in education. So I think keeping that in front of mind and then also highlighting the research and, and sharing that learning on how that's done uh, can, can really create a benefit there. Yeah, maybe just to add quickly, because those are uh, very thorough answers already, uh, to both Joy and Gabrielle's question. I, I think one of the um, promising bits, too, about the World Bank's new framing on this is they engage a lot, a lot more than I think we do generally, with ministers of finance, right? So they have the ear of the ministers of finance. And as long as we can figure out, again, how to articulate this better to them, but that the return on investment in the earliest years, both pre-primary and primary, are really key. Um, and we're finding that, uh, it's just one example, in Uganda we recently conducted a study where in some places upwards of half of the kids enrolled in grade one are actually underage. So the answer there is not let's kick them out and not give them anything. The answer is, oh my goodness, there's a huge demand for pre-primary and early childhood education largely because mom needs to work, dad needs to work, everybody needs to contribute to society. So let's not, again, kick those kids out. Let's provide them with something, a high quality early learning space. Uh, as another camp example here in DC, when DC expanded its early childhood education program and made it universal, uh, women's employment went up 10 percentage points across DC. So when you provide it, we can go work. I can drop my child off at a high quality safe place where they can learn a ton during the day and I can go do other things and contribute to economic development and contribute 
we are not reaping that dividend in a lot of the countries where we partner because women are typically in the home caring for children and, and working on raising those children. Um, being able to articulate that to ministers of finance, if, if you do a good job investing in these early years, here are all the benefits that you're going to reap, I think will, needs to be part of that part of that dialogue, and that we can do that in an efficient and effective way. Part of the reason why, so it's great to see countries putting more in, that means they have confidence in that system to be effective. They don't believe it's just throwing money into a pit. It's actually really supporting and advancing the system. So when we can articulate that, so a bit to, to your question, um, also on the private sector, is I think that there are roles for the private sector to certainly play in this. We need to work on strengthening government systems to make sure that that's effective, right? So a way to work with private systems, um, there are some countries, Haiti, the vast majority of provision is private. The government needs to be better supported to be able to engage to make sure that that's of high quality so that all kids are getting what they need. And that kind of partnership between the private sector and the public sector is strengthening also the public sector to be able to work more carefully and um, ensure high quality across all systems. And you're going to solve the how do we get to higher education while not reducing inequality or, or yeah, increasing well, inequality? Well, I, I'm going to. left that one for I, you. I think that that's the right question to ask because it's about trade offs. And it's, um, if we're talking about the public resources or even all resources, resources are limited. And um, we could put all of our resources into basic education. And we would still not solve all the problems. So, you know, I think of uh, there was this seminal study in the U.S. called A Nation at Risk. That was 1973, I think, that said that our education system is, is so bad that it creates a security problem for us. And we, we still have, you know, very daunting challenges in our basic education system in this country. So <clears throat> if we think of... Of our of of the resource, if we think of the resources we're talking about, our external resources, or our foreign assistance resources, or or, or, or um, you know, could be from foundations, but are essentially um, donor resources to support education development in poor contexts, then we do need to have this strategic conversation about where can they make the biggest difference. And if we put them all into basic education and we succeed as we have over the last 30 years in getting millions and millions and millions of more kids through the first six years of, of schooling, and then there's no place for them to go, which is the situation right now in many countries where kids, you look at the enrollment rate in primary education and it's high. It's in the 80s, 90s percent. If you look at it at the secondary education, it drops down into around the 50 to 60 percent. Um, and in some places, much lower than that, and it is the girls who don't go on to, to secondary school. If we're not focusing on that and then on post-secondary opportunities, which is where the economic demands are, then, then those investments that we're making in the foundation are not going to reap the kind of benefits that we expect. So in terms of what are the trade-offs, we need to really look at those trade-offs. And then we need to make determinations about where 
as the international community should we be making our investments. My argument is we need to be looking to the horizon. And that fits in with the journey to self-reliance and with your point about domestic resource mobilization, that countries have to take responsibility for their foundational systems and we need to encourage them to do that. But I, I don't pretend that that getting the balance of those trade-offs is easy. I, and I think that it's made more difficult because, because we've been doing it a certain way for a long time, so there's a lot of just institutional resistance to change, and there's normal inertia, and that's not unique, I mean, that's not specific to the international efforts. I, I work very closely with the school system in Durham, North Carolina, where FHI 360 is based. We see very similar problems there, you know, institutional resistance to change, even in the face of, of um, clear demands. So that's my response to that. On the, I want to make a comment about the pyramid of funding that, that you mentioned. You know, that was a main issue in 1990 was that too much money was going to higher education and primary education was being starved. But that pyramid was reversed. Now, I haven't looked at the educational financing stuff in, in probably... No, 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 in terms of total spending on education in, say, African countries. I, I used to know those stats very well. But um, it reversed uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s to where you had more of the education budgets going to primary education. Now, one of the things that has stressed it out is that these populations are doubling every 20 years. Um, but I, I don't think the, the pyramid right now is that of the public funding that the majority is going to higher education. I, I'm pretty sure that that pyramid has not re reversed. On your question about leveraging all the actors in the development community, or I mean in, in a community um, towards education, um, if you're talking about private provision of education, like Amber, that's what you spoke to. In, in many countries, they've done that pretty well for some time. I, I'm thinking of the, the faith-based schools, Catholic schools, Islamic schools, and, you know, uh, Protestant schools in Africa, where they've, they've worked out, uh, you know, incorporating those schools into the system, having shared curriculums and you know nothing is perfect but it has it has enabled reaching millions and millions of kids and 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 providing schooling if you're talking about the commercial sector like what role do private companies not education providers but companies and and uh, civil society organizations in a community play in terms of contributing towards uh, ensuring that all youth, all children have access to a quality education. There, there's been a lot of efforts to do that. Um, nobody really knows how to do it very well, and in part because that's a very dynamic environment. So again, from Durham, I'm on the board of a group called Maiden Durham. It's a public-private partnership of uh, companies, so major, major commercial players, the school system, the county government, um, and civil society organizations. And just in the years I've been working on that board, 
it's very dependent on the personalities of the individuals. So you have a head of, of a big pharmaceutical or a head of IBM in that area. They're a big employer. They have a big stake in that community. You get a, a CEO there who plays a really active role, puts resources in it, it moves it ahead, the, the partnership is dynamic. That person retires or is replaced, the new person comes in, that's not their priority, and the whole thing slows down. So getting those public-private partnerships to work is really difficult. As Pia said, it takes a lot of investment, trust building, and a lot of my experience is a lot of it comes down to personalities. Do the people in the room like each other? Do they trust each other? Are they there long enough to get something done? And uh, finally, on how to prioritize it in crisis settings, now both Julie and Pia said that, you know, you're in agreement that education is one of those core elements of humanitarian response. And I'm, I, I love it that you are, and I love it that USAID is prioritizing it. I didn't realize 50% of your budget's going there. But that is not the priority for the humanitarian community. There are four things that are prioritized. It is food security, physical security, health, and what is the fourth one? Water, wash, wash. So it's sanitation, health, physical security and food security, education's not on that list. And until we get education on that list, we're not going to solve that problem. Okay, on that, I'm gonna just leave you with my, my interrogatory for all of you. Tell me who's gonna replace Nita Lowy. <laughs> because I'm telling you, if, if personalities matter, I, if I look at the four folks who are the sponsors, I'm not sure all of them are on the key, there's a key subcommittee in the House and a key subcommittee in the Senate. If they're not in that, on those subcommittees, and they're not in the leadership job, they're not gonna be able to push this. So I'll leave you with that, okay? Thanks everybody.